0: The Creative Relay is recorded, mixed and mastered at Smith & Western Studios. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to smithandweston.com.au and get your first episode produced for free. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Paul Dunn and welcome to The Creative Relay, the podcast where Australia's most inspiring creatives talk to the creatives that most inspire them. Brought to you by Smith & Weston. So Gavin McLeod, welcome to The Creative Relay. Thank you. Very happy to be here. It's an absolute delight to get you in here. And you've been back in the country now for a year? and a half. Year and a half. And a half. <laughs> so we've taken our time. I apologise. But you've been a busy man. So tell us about the new gig or the... The current gig, I guess, is not new
1: anymore. I guess coming back was a bit of a reset moment, partly because it was so unexpected. Many reasons, family reasons more than anything else, drove us coming back. And it was a decision that we made very... We were forced to make quite quickly. Um, so it wasn't one of those ones where I'd carefully thought out the plan of what I was doing and anything. It was more like, oh, my God, now I have to find a job. Mm-hmm. And I got some of the best advice um, from someone, who, you know. Hamish hey, Stewart said to me is well, why don't you use it as an opportunity? Because it's the first time it's not tied to the slight kind of nervousness as a creative being seen that you're in the market or you're talking to people. Whereas if you don't have that pressure, he said, well, you know a lot of people. Why don't you catch up with Um, do and it was obviously virtual coffee chats which has prepared me well for 2020 (laughs) but is reach out to people and have chats to people you really respect around what's the state of the industry in Australia at the moment um, and what opportunities might be in that and that was actually amazing it was probably my favorite thing of that like once I got over the nerves of um, putting myself out there Mm. and I actually got a lot out of it because it's really interesting seeing people's perspectives of the industry, the agencies operating in the industry, the change that's happening in the industry as well. Uh, and then I guess what was really lucky off the back of that is that it opened up a couple of quite interesting conversations that were very different in in, in what they would be. Um, and I guess the reason I chose Ogilvy was um, David David Fox. Foxy, he did a great sell on me on the change that Ogilvy's gone through. And it's it, it was interesting from the perspective of how long your perception of a agency stays mm. to what it was as opposed to what it is. So when I started digging under and looked at their capabilities from a digital perspective and and sort of more and foxy calls it different shaped ideas like sort of owned media PR led ideas I thought they're doing some pretty cool work they've got some big clients. Uh, the the volume of work is attractive and unashamedly it's it's actually a surprisingly big agency in terms of the creative capabilities in it as well and the sort of integrated capabilities so all of those things made me go oh that's pretty interesting and you know the last couple of agencies I worked for have have been startups Mm. so I was very conscious of you know how hard it is in the beginning when you're trying to build something so there was a real attraction to going in and working at that place with scale. And then obviously my, my remit is come in and, and Foxy calls it modernising the creative department, which has been fun. It's been a fun, challenging brief. Right.
0: But taking a step back from the Ogilvy job, so prior to that you were in San Francisco at AKQA, yeah? And how long were you there for, Gav? Was it a couple of years?
1: Were... Uh, it was close to three years. Right. Long, yeah.
0: And prior to that RGA in Sydney, which you'd set up very successfully, set it on a very successful path. And I imagine that was a fairly tough slog. It
1: was. It was. But it was kind of one of those interesting ones where you look back at it, and, and I actually think I lost my mind in it, because you're so conscious of a brand like RGA. I guess I joined IGA at the height of IGA, really bursting into the scene as yeah. something more than a, a digital shop. Yeah. And they'd just done work that I thought was sort of marketing-defining work. I, you know, FuelBand had just launched, and they were doing such interesting stuff. So... The challenge, and I'm sure it's the same challenge that the guys at Droga5 had when they opened Droga in Sydney. Yeah, is you've got your mothership doing the most crazy, interesting work in in the world, and then you you've got that pressure on you in in, the, in the, your local in your local office, and there's only three of you sitting in an office, and you're doing all your own IT on top of everything else. I think at that time I was creative and suiting, which is a bit of a disaster as well. <laughs> But it, it was also the most fascinating period I, I think I've had in my career because I just learned so much. I mean, their model is so interesting. Like they really are an integrated global model. Uh, they, they talk about one p across all the network. So what that does is remove those barriers, those siloed barriers mm-hmm. and stuff. And so you're accessing some of the best people in the world. So from my personal development perspective, I loved it. It was, it was just so interesting. But the pressure was intense.
0: It's funny you, you should frame it like that because you do look at um, Droga opening up in Australia and 72 and Sunny. And the, the the pressure to sort of like live up to that brand when you're dealing with local clients and local sensibilities can be really tough, can't it?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm really proud of what we did in there. And, uh, you know, looking back at it, it was such an awesome team of people. And that's probably the thing I enjoyed the most was, you know, curating a team of people that you start from scratch yeah. on. You don't often get an opportunity like that in your career. Yeah. But the 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 one thing that saved my sanity at Swind, I I was having a chat to Scott from the Monkeys once, and quite long into the maybe four years into it. I was really feeling the pressure of delivering to the promise. And he he just had such a great perspective and he reminded me of the monkeys. He said the first five years of the monkeys, I mean, they've obviously got to the point where they're the darlings of the industry and, you know, doing so incredibly well and well-deserved. But he said the first five years we were scrapping for everything and no job was too small and, and the quality of the work, you know, it wasn't universally as good as it probably is now. And it was such a good reminder that when you're building something like that, you you know, you, you've you got to start somewhere. <laughs>
0: So what drew you to AKQA then after RGA? You just liked more letters?
1: It's <laughs> so true. Uh, it was two things. One is, um, and I, I didn't actually think I was going to move because I really, you know, I was obviously emotionally in, invested in um, RGA, but I had been talking to Nick Law. I, I've always had the ambition to work in the States. I don't know what it is about it, but I just, I've always loved, and I think American advertising at its best has a sort of, irreverence and like the, the the quality of the writing the quality of the art direction the scale of the budgets like a it was always a huge attraction and i've always kind of flirted with the idea and had a few opportunities over the few years but also going well it's a pretty big move and it's got to feel like the right opportunity mm-hmm. so it's, for various reasons those didn't and, and then i guess as your life stage gets to you know having kids and stuff and they they become more settled you kind of go well that that ship has sailed so out of the blue i got contacted by akqa um and then I guess I, I really looked into their agent, that agency in particular. And it, what was interesting around them is that they're in San Francisco. They're in the heartland of the technology world. Uh, they had a lot of clients that were immersed in that space. Um, and they had stuff that I think would played to my sensibility of doing things that are slightly broader than just traditional advertising. And then I just like the people. Like I had a lot of chats with them over over Zoom and stuff. I was really preparing well for <laughs> twenty twenty. You're a trailblazer. <laughs> oh I was yeah. but um I, I just like the people and I, I guess the people thing has always been a big determiner for me. Like yeah. I mean just this job is such a hard slog. You don't want to be with a bunch of people that you, you don't like. Yeah. And then, surprisingly enough, when I started talking to my family, they were like, "No chance." And then, actually, strangely enough, my my daughters kind of came around to the thought and were up for the adventure, and my wife as well. So, you know, we decided as a family. We actually literally had a vote. We all voted, and it was tied. So we gave the dog a vote, <laughs> and the dog the dog determined that we were going to go to San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Did the dog come back with
1: you? At vast expense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. bet.
0: Okay, so coming back to landing in Ogilvy, which is when you look at your career and the path you've taken, you can look at Ogilvy as a bit of an anomaly, or you can see it as a a real kind of statement on where that agency kind of wants to go. And I think in the year before you came back, they made a big thing about merging their creative content and their social teams all together. And is that still the way it's set up, their creative department?
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah that's not to say that we don't have people that have their real strengths that sits in there so one of the people I'm really happy that I've got to come on board is um Pete Gomez like I think Pete's a very interesting creative because he started off as a, a sort of traditional creative and then he's moved into the world of content and then he made a purposeful change a couple of years ago and moved deep into social so there's someone who really understands that space and understands how to properly work with influencers and uh, their the own media space like Pete's you need people like that who are passionate about it. Mm. And I guess he's a very good example of, of an integrated department because I haven't hired him because he's a social creative. I've hired him because he's, a, in my, in my opinion, a, a fantastic creative, but he's got a real understanding of where he wants to lean into. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I really lean on him of having a deep understanding in that space. And he
0: think. sits in the creative department.
1: He sits in the creative department, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah right. Yeah. I read somewhere you talked about, was it T-shaped creatives? T-shirt, great. Oh, tell us about
1: this, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that, that, that's one of the reasons that I think an agency like an AKQA is very interesting. I suppose in the agency where you and I last work, like an MNC, you know, a creative has a particular role and um, you're an art director or writer and people go deep in that expertise. Um, whereas a place like AKQA, and, and to a degree IGA as well, values they call it T-shaped creatives so people with a broad range of skills so we're talking about um, people with motion skills um, editing skills, shooting skills your conceptual skills and then their craft skills if they happen to be an art director or, or a writer, so that's the, T- the T-shape, it's like a broad range of things that sit on the top but then they've got their specialisation within where they can go really deep, so that might be UX for example or um, copywriting or an art director, and I think that is actually the future. And it's the one thing that's really struck me about the younger creatives in the US, and I can see it even in in my department like they have a real desire to learn more stuff. So there's more and more creatives that come in and do their own first edit, or I mean, even go and shoot, especially the social creatives like shooting their own stuff, but not just shooting. Badly shooting, shooting really well. Like Mm. RGA had a really interesting model where, you know, you sat with social. When I was there, you had uh, they were sort of experimenting with all sorts of models. I don't know if it's still there, but what they and it made a lot of sense. There was a content strategist, a writer, and then what they would call as a shooter creator. So that person would go and shoot it and execute it, and and generally had motion skills. And the the quality of the work that they were producing was pretty exceptional. Mm. So I, I think that does push to this new type of creative that's coming out. Mm. I mean, I'm feeling the pressure. I'm feeling the pressure that I need to learn um, properly, learn editing, and I, I wouldn't mind a bit of basic kind of motion skills as well. Mm.
0: So when it comes then to recruitment of creatives, how much has that changed in, in what you're looking for then?
1: I mean, it definitely has changed. because, and, and I think it's harder on art directors more than anyone else because writers have always... I, I always think that writers... That's a
0: typical art director thing to say.
1: (laughs) Well, no, it's true because, I mean, a writer, you're either blessed by being able to write. I mean, if you're blessed by being able to write, you can pretty much hit the job. You know, you can start working in the job almost instantly. Whereas now... I think that odds are stacked against you as an art director. You can't use an art director in the industry anymore. That doesn't have pretty highly advanced skills around how they can pull presentations together and decks and all that sort of stuff. It's just mm. it's just a, a must have. Mm. And when the thing that struck me about the US in particular, and I guess in San Francisco, you see not just US, you see like the best of coming out of um, Swedish design schools and things. Like the the level of skill that those c- kids have as, as art directors is off the Richter scale like they are so good they're probably better than a lot of people that have been working in the industry for a, quite a long time mm-hmm. yeah so that's the base level and you go well they just slot straight in and on day one they, they're highly highly effective on what they're doing um, because they've been properly taught and they've been taught the skills as well, so that's why I think it's harder for an art director—not not conceptually. Like, uh, I mean, I, I firmly believe an art director can be just as good as anyone as at ideas, but execution is a whole different story. Mm, mm. And I, I guess I was of that generation that was lucky enough to get in without any really real skills and then have a couple of years of you know some great people teaching you how to be good at what you do.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've often wondered about how much value there is in ideas as opposed to uh, how well you present them or how well the stimulus is that you you have to present them what's your what's your feeling on that i think
1: having the skill to turn something that's not a great idea you can make it seem like a better idea than you can but you can't ever hide the fact that it's not a good idea Mm -hmm. Um, and it'll probably get further down the process and it might even end up getting made because you've you've been able to um, turn something, put a little bit of glitter on something that probably shouldn't have the glitter on it. Mm. So that's okay, but but the, the the thing that it really helps for, like when when you have got a great idea and then you can execute it, even at the beginning stage when you are selling it and, and you are doing it. Like I've become a big advocate on, and I think we should care about it. Like I I feel like the way an idea is presented. Um, should have just the same amount of care and, and thought and thinking into it as the final execution does. And I know not everyone agrees with that because it's mm-hmm. an enormous waste of time, but I guess I'm interested in the the, uh, the art of how we sell ideas. Yeah. And I'm constantly challenging myself and um, the team of, am I falling into a trope of doing it in a certain way? Yeah. And I definitely suffer that problem. You know, you hit a formula, you think it's winning, but it gets tired. So yeah. you, you're kind of trying to find new ways of doing it. Yeah. And it was interesting. I had a guy in San Francisco, EB, who was very, very funny, Southern. Um, never and had never sworn in, in, until he was 21, um, and then sort of as an act of rebellion, started swearing, and then he couldn't stop. So, <laughs> <laughs> so his thing was, and in terms of selling ideas, is like you. I would always start a meeting with EB and it's saying to the client, look give me a number how long before you think EB's going to swear because he couldn't help himself but it was unco- he would actually try not to so then we would have this running joke around when E B would say the first swear He's, and he would call it a cuss word um, but that just broke the ice yeah. and it was actually so effective for us I mean this is a dumb example, but it was so effective for us in terms of getting clients in the mindset where they were more likely to to go along with some of our crazy ideas.
0: Oh, they're going to buy things off people they like. Yeah. I remember Tom Derry from MNC many years ago making a big announcement to the whole agency saying how we're all salesmen. And a lot of people took exception to that. But I always thought that was so true.
1: And again, you the product of your experience, so I think maybe I was unduly influenced by um, and I would say Nick Law really drove that at IGA, like the storytelling of how an idea is told. Nick really cared about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I thought Nick was cared about it, but Ajaz Ahmed, uh, like he really cares about it. It's like Ajaz is meticulously, he's so meticulous about detail to the mm-hmm. point where you'd walk into a room and if Ajaz was in it, and it just became ingrained in the AKQA psyche, like people would walk into a room and then they would spend 10 minutes before the client meeting making the room look perfect. Mm. <laughs> and I guess what I really came to appreciate it is it's you could argue it's like over the top tension to detail, but actually what it is is a deep, deep kind of passion for the detail. And then when you get that mindset you suddenly realize why AKQA is so good at the craft. Yeah.
0: But then how do you balance that with things having to be so quick? You know, the fast turnaround and the pace that we're demanded to work at these days doesn't really give you the opportunity to have that much focus on your details. So how do those two things coexist? Or where's the sort of happy medium?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. And th- that's the single biggest challenge we all have as creatives. Because as you, as you well know, from what, where we were when I started in my career and the demands that you had to do, which I look back at and go, well, why was I ever stressed? I mean, you do a TV out of printout and maybe an not at home. Whereas now it's like do every medium under the sun and do it in like a third of the time that you had to do it back then. And I I probably really felt that pressure at um, RGA when we started, particularly in the early days, because like I said, like when we started, there was three of us in a room. So and we got some pretty big pitch opportunities. So you didn't have the resources all the time to do it because you were doing everything. Mm. So what we and we had a lot of chats about, Okay, well, how do we do this? And what we decided on it and whether it's right or wrong, but it certainly shaped my, my point of view is what we decided is what we wouldn't do is what agencies had done or the agencies I'd worked in had done. You know, if we've got two weeks on a pitch, let's spend a week and five days umming and eyeing about the idea and then try and do all the execution in the last in the last two or three days. So what we decided to do is and this is to your point over how do you do all this quick, is we would go, okay, on a pitch we're going to do a brainstorm um, with the whole agency and, you know, that started with three of us and got bigger (laughs) Um, and and come up with some of the most interesting territories that we've got and we'd do that in the first... We would do that like... uh, We would walk out of the client briefing for the pitch and we would do it immediately Uh, and then we would have... Uh, we would have like let's say we, we got six things that we thought they're not going to be perfect at this point but there's six things that were interesting so then the strategy can go in way and prove or disprove some of these thoughts and creative can start evolving them and then, and then the next day we'd come together and we, maybe we've got three and then the day afterwards we've got like uh, and we were trying to get to one so we go okay this is our idea we're all in on this idea now we've got A week and a half to make this the best idea that they've ever seen and we can work through all the problems and stuff and the other thing we started doing is um, because we were working on Google and Google mandated and I think we were one of the first people to properly do this like we were working in slides Google slides so that there was because we had this single idea we would try and create a a skeleton deck as in the first three days Mm. Because now everybody knows what the story is, mm. and the story is going to evolve over time. And where I loved it, loved that is that it then made it very clear what I wanted the creative teams to do. Like we've got a, we've got an idea, we've got a story of how it's coming together. So now the work is illustrating particular points. Right. So that allowed us, and we, we had a phenomenally successful um, pitch thing at RGA. and I think it was because we gave ourselves the time to put these coherent stories in it's
0: interesting as well because you the, the role of strategy there is to delve into your creative directions and go from that as opposed to dictate what the creative direction is That's what I love about it makes a big difference and it it
1: actually reshaped my point of view on on strategy like and to that to up until then i'd definitely been in the mindset of you know strategy does their thing they give us a brief as creatives which we all tell them is the worst brief we've ever seen (laughs) yes and then we reluctantly work on it yeah like we got to the point i'm not sure this is right but we got to a point where we very rarely wrote briefs for pitches. my change out of that was i actually came to realize that um, strategy is a creative discipline and If it's a creative discipline, like if you think about all the creative disciplines, like what is the most challenging part of our job is you go into endless reviews with client or internally and everybody's got an opinion on the work and the work as a consequence evolves and changes and our challenge as creative leads is to work out what's worth listening to and what isn't. Whereas that never really happened in my previous experience of strategy. You know, the strategy was set and then the work had to work to that. But it mm. became really interesting when the strategy was morphing and evolving with the work. Yeah, And so I actually really enjoyed that because suddenly strategists became part of the creative team.
0: How did the strategists cope with that? Because that's, that's a big shift for them. I found they become very attached to their strategy because they put so much of themselves into it. And it's very hard for them to take... Criticism.
1: Yeah, I think I've been a little lucky in that because be, before um, that, I'd been at TBWA, TBWA with, um, when Maddie and Dave were running it. And H, who'd run the strategy department, was by nature very collaborative. And right. he would often come to me and talk about like the his thinking on the strategy. So, you know, I was used to that. And then, like I said, RJ was an anomaly because we hired people that would come in. And I would say... You, some of the people there, Alicia and um, and Diva, like those are they're very creative people themselves. So they just naturally worked in that thing. I remember sitting in a a pitch on a Sunday reviewing work, and Alicia, who was a strategist, arguing for, like so passionately about the work, um, and I didn't agree with her, but she convinced me that it was right. And she wasn't arguing as a strategist; she was arguing as a creative in that. Um, right. So that, that, that was cool. And then it was, again, AKQA was similar. But then going to Ogilvy is quite interesting because like, I think it's a really strong strategy team. Like um, Toby, um, who runs strategy, and Ryan, they've built a really strong team. I mean, it, it is a little bit more like the traditional model. The strategy will think of stuff, but it's, not, it's definitely not coming in and going, hey, this is the strategy. Like they're very... I think they I mean I know they welcome kind of input in from the creative side and they're very much part of the the creative review process and the, the journey to the work and mm. I actually get a lot of value out of them like I, I respect I respect I mean I think it's a great strategy team I respect all their points of view so I want to hear their points of view about the work. <laughs>
0: So just in terms of the evolution of creative, how much value do you see in ideas?
1: Uh, A massive amount. Uh, I use, um, actually,
0: I think that's one interesting thing around
1: KFC at Ogilvy because you know the challenges of working on large retail clients like that. They do um, retail campaigns on a monthly basis and it's impossibly difficult to do it when, there's so much resting on the success of those campaigns. And when you're reinventing the wheel every single time, um, the, the client feels the pressure, the agency feels the pressure because you've got to get it right every single time. And if you're doing 12 of those a year, you're not going to get it right every single time. Mm. Whereas the genius of, of what's happened at Ogilvy is they've built these platforms that have permeated culture. Like, mm. shut up and take my money. Or did someone say KFC is literally stuff that people are saying in news broadcasts and, and things like that. But what that does is, and it's the power of an idea, because it removes that pressure of you know you've got this umbrella thought. Everybody knows what it's going to do, and it becomes around well, how do we execute it in a different way? So the level of pressure that's on the creative department, on the agency, and on the client is lessened by a massive amount, and that's that's because they've got platforms that they can build on over time, and they've and they've become more and more um, powerful and stronger over, over that course of time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm a big believer of it. The
0: the KFC stuff's a great example, I reckon. Um, The evolution of that is remarkable, especially considering that they didn't change agencies to achieve it. Just the history of that, I think, must be really interesting to delve into, like how they managed to do that. Do you, do you know what was the background of that? This is
1: obviously my perspective and just my point of view based on conversations I've had people. I don't know if it's the official man- <laughs> mandated history. Yeah. From what I can gather, it's it's two things. One, it's trust. Like, There's it, it, a relationship that I haven't very rarely seen in my career around a degree of trust in um, agency and client. And the, the, on the KFC side, there's people that have been working there for a very, very long time and have worked with Ogilvy for a very, very long time. Um, so trust is a big factor on both sides. And Ogilvy is more integrated into KFC than most clients that I've, I've ever seen. Like, there's a, obviously, because of the time period. Like, there's a lot of people on both sides that have worked on the account for a long time. But part of that trust is also very open and honest conversations about where Ogilvy hasn't been performing and so a good example is a few years ago the client challenged Ogilvy around um, not necessarily being that strong in earned media ideas and I think we've we've done in the last um, three years some exceptional work, I don't know if you know the Mission Impossible where Mm. You know, sending a KFC, a genuine KFC franchisee on a mission to get a Michelin star. Mm. Um, so, so, and it really just the, the results are phenomenal in terms of um, media impressions and all that sort of stuff. But the level of detail that went into making that a success is, is actually a really phenomenal story around... Um, doing a crazy idea but really thinking through what could happen in a crazy idea so there was literally plan a plan b plan c and you know plan d was hey this guy might if it takes off might actually go to michelin and on that what happens if he actually gets an interview with the (laughs) head of michelin star (laughs) which is what happened
0: yeah that's awesome yeah yeah,
1: it's pretty it's cool and i guess and then and you can't do any of that work without without clients and and KFC has been very fortunate over the over the many years as having um, CMOs who've actually bought interesting work. Mm. So credit to the clients; they deserve it.
0: So it has only been a year and a half that you've been there. In that time, what's the achievement that you think you're most proud of?
1: I guess I'm most proud of the spirit that I've created in the creative department. Like it's a good bunch of people. Uh, and I've really, I've really tried to get, get to know everyone, obviously it's your job, uh, but then also pushing us to work in a different way uh, and working in the cloud, working collaboratively, all those sort of things. Like I really pushed us to do that in the agency because I, I believe it makes an impact on the work. Uh, and that positioned us really well when overnight literally overnight you know we left work on a Friday and on a Sunday night got a call going, "Hey, no one's coming back to the office, and what it's been like seven or eight months now." Yeah and if we hadn't been working like that we would have been in deep deep trouble yeah, right. but we'd, we'd kind of done the painful and i'd been probably in the role for about a year and it'd become a way of working for us yeah. so we, we made that transition really well and that's
0: and that was purely motivated as a means to make the work more collaborative make the
1: work more collaborative give visibility to everyone including myself because i guess one of the frustrations i used to have it's like a as an mnc and this is purely driven by me i find out an interesting thing about myself like we did one of those strengths and weaknesses courses at at AKQA and I found out that what I am is uh, I'm driven by context um, and I, I operate best when you give me I I've got an understanding of why I'm doing the job. My problem is that I, I have no limit to the context. <laughs> so I'll just keep going and going and going. But I, I would get really frustrated as a junior creator if we were working on a pitch, working on my piece, but not understanding where it fitted into the whole picture. So what I like about the transparency is I love it because it shows me what people are working on. So I can get in earlier rather than finding out 10 minutes before the presentation that I don't like that particular thing. And I think it works the other way around because someone can see, like the most junior person in the creative department can see the story that um, we, we're trying to craft for this thing and they've got visibility. The downside is sometimes they can see how um, how indecisive and certain we are about what their story is. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> John Haggerty, when we were talking to him, he predicted this creative revolution, you know, where creatives were actually going to start taking back control of um, or have a more controlling role within agencies, whatever sort of structure they have. Do you see that as likely or happening? I would
1: say um, there's two, two parts to that. The first part is I absolutely believe it and I think it's our time now. And going back to what you said is like I guess when both of us started, we would never even think about going, well, you're probably better because you're always good at this, but you you just wouldn't have thought of going to a meeting to sell your work, Mm -hmm. whereas now it's just expected that creatives are in there selling it. And I, I think then the more senior you get, you're not just selling your work, you're selling the agency you're selling the relationship you suddenly you suddenly much more at the coalface of of the stuff that's important in the in the industry from a financial side of things and you've got a much bigger ability to influence that so i think it's true that creatives have have accepted that responsibility and are doing it and i think it's a good thing for creatives um and probably the best example and this is the second part of that is one of the highlights of akqa was um meeting with uh, two guys, Hugo and Diego, who now are the chief creative officers globally, along with a guy called Peter. Uh, what was so amazing about them is that they did the um, Dove beauty sketches and were working in, uh, I think, Brazil at the time. They're Brazilian and wanted to go overseas and it was just a feeding frenzy. I think they went to Cannes and the ho- everyone was throwing positions and money and titles at them I and mean, they just won you know, Grand prizes and stuff and so you know, everyone wanted them. And a jazz trumped everyone by saying, I want you to stay, because they were very keen to move uh, overseas. And he said, I want you to stay in Brazil and I want you to start your own agency and I'll bankroll you to, to to build your own agency. And he wasn't talking about like building it in some, he said, literally build your own agency, like the building. So they went away and they, they created like an amazing agency. Like AKQA Sao Paulo is uh, unbelievable. A, they live in a sort of architecturally awarded um, building with their own chef but it's a family it's a community and their point of view on it was they are an utterly creative agency and, and Brazil's interesting because media is never divorced so mm-hmm. the, the success of Brazilian agencies is because of the dollars that sit in the media they don't have that um, but I mean last year at Cannes they won two Grand Prix's mm-hmm. um, for, two, d- for two different pieces of work so you know the and, and they've got this. And the other point of view was they said we're not an agency. We are. We're. A, we want to be embedded in the cultural fabric of creativity. So they use. They call it the casa, the, uh, the castle, or the, our place. Um, they use it as uh, a cultural hub. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly having poets and bands and you know, artists and performances. And then it is. It has become a cultural hub in Sao Paulo. So like that to me is like it's two people that have. Defined themselves and their agency through creativity, but they're probably one of the most successful AKQI officers in terms of the accolades of the industry, but also financially as well. Like, yeah, right. Super interesting group of like, I mean, again, that's to your point. Like, that is creative leading the charge.
0: Yeah, that's that's really inspiring, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And I think that's why I really loved Scott Wyburn as well. Uh, at Wiley yeah. and it's very hard not to as a creative really respect um, what Scott had built mm. and the fact that he was legitimately like running that show mm. I mean there's a great story over him like my, my last week it was literally my last week you know that last week when you're really winding down and you're trying to do as little as possible <laughs> without yeah. appearing like that. <laughs> um, I got a call saying, can you come down for this pitch in Melbourne? And I was like, oh, all right. And it was, I was literally on the way home. So they said, you need to get on a flight now. So I just got on a flight with an. No cl- I think they bought me bought me clothes when I was there. <laughs> and Scott was um, it was his uh, pitch and he just wasn't around for a couple of days and the whole thing just sort of ground to a halt. So I was essentially just waiting for him to come into the agency but he came in and he was so decisive. Like he he just walked in like a general. And I think he, he was smoking a cigar and, and had a glass of whiskey in his hand. And he was, <laughs> he was it was a Sunday and he was just directing people. He was like, he just clearly had it all mapped out. And he said, I want you to do this, I want you to do this. And I, I had a very particular role to play. And then afterwards, he came up and he was telling, uh, he was looking at the work and stuff. And he was telling me about the role that he wanted the work to play in the whole thing. And I, I remember asking him, you know how it was going. He said, "Oh, I've been working on this for s- six months. Um, this meeting is really just icing on the cake, and I know exactly which levers I need to pull on this whole thing." So he's just, again, that's, I loved it from a point of view. Mm. This is a creative person who has elevated themselves from you know just just taking responsibility for the work and they're thinking about the big business, picture, yeah. their business, and they've got they they bring all their creativity to that on so many levels. Yeah. It was really impressive. <laughs>
0: Your career, I reckon, has been so interesting, Gav. So you've gone from – because I think when we first worked together, you were more indirect, then you morphed into above-the-line kind of work – and then you just became this incredible digital specialist. So how do you see that evolution and, and what role do you think it's played in who you are today?
1: I'm I really um, incredibly grateful for that. And I wish I could say it was with careful foresight and planning. The reality is a lot of it was just mistakes because I actually started as a traditional creative in Cape Town uh, and worked for about two and a half years At a little agency, and kind of never travelled. So I, I took some and took six months off. And I remember someone saying at my farewell, saying, "You won't be back." And I was like, "What do you mean? I'm coming back in six months." And they were right. I've never been back, but. what it did was I went to New Zealand and I guess because I was essentially you know three years into it a new country where I I literally got the phone book because this was pre the internet and started at A because I didn't even know what the agencies were and worked my way through and got to C which was Colenso (laughs) uh, and got offered a job which I had no idea I was like oh that's pretty cool yeah yeah. (laughs) um but then then what happened off the back of that was the first time I ever got retrenched. And fortunately, so far, the only time I got retrenched in my career happened there because uh, Michael Sullivan came in. And I really wanted to be part of that, but he, uh, I wasn't part of it. So I had to find a job. So I got offered a job in uh, a little direct marketing agency, which is called Ranger Direct, which is very... Um, for the space they were in was very creative, and I'd never, I'd never even heard of direct marketing, <laughs> so I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so suddenly, I found myself doing this, which I thought was, uh, and again, I, I really don't regret the skills I learned there. It was just so interesting finding out. I think of it, direct marketing was always like how how things actually work. So oh, yeah. just finding out the mechanics of how you get someone to do something that I want to do yeah. <laughs> is interesting. And then I, I, I ended up at MNC. Uh, through uh, into the direct department and, and was very lucky to work with Dave King on that. And I guess we, we were so hungry for opportunity and we really wanted to prove ourselves as creative. So we did that and and that led to us becoming mainstream creatives, which for me was kind of back to where I, I thought I wanted to go. Uh, and then where, where it became interesting was uh, I got offered the opportunity to work in digital at the time where digital really was in its infancy. Mm. And I went... Because I I think I'd started realising then that I'm most happy when I'm outside of my comfort zone. I get very frustrated when I feel like I'm just in a rut and I'm doing the same thing all the time. So I like the feeling. I don't like it because I find it terrifying. (laughs) I'm challenged by pushing myself out of my comfort zone. So that was the biggest one. I remember... Going to my first meeting as the lead of lead creative and stuff, and going, oh, I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I really, walked in.
0: yeah, because well, I mean, you bluff very well, I reckon.
1: Well, yeah. the, the thing is, I walked into that meeting and I, I was feeling really subconscious, like self conscious around. It. And then I realised in about five minutes that the client knew less than I was. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm all right. Oh, bless him. But I was lucky at this stage because it was so in its infancy, so no yeah. one really knew what the hell we were doing. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I became really interested in, in digital. And then I got the call from TBWA. And I guess the C- CEO now, Paul Bradby, I'd worked with him at NRMA and I really liked him as a suit. And I'd worked briefly with Maddie and Dave at um, another agency and, and thought they were the best creators I'd seen. Um, so they, they called me and said, um, do you, do you want to come over there? And I was like, oh, I'm flattered. You know, they're pulling me to be at the thing. But they actually what they were pulling me to do was um, – to come in and do help them on a lot of stuff but in particular they wanted me to look after uh or, or start integer which is the shopper marketing i would never even heard of shopper marketing <laughs> i'm like what's this <laughs> but um i was working with someone georgia bruden i really liked her pa- passion she was yeah. just so passionate about it and what was interesting for me where uh, they i think we one of the first meetings there's there's a very famous um kind of rule from PNG. I don't know if they still followed, but the thinking was every campaign should start from the shelf. I mean, I think the logic was it's like 80% of decisions are made when people are standing in an aisle. Mm-hmm. So if your campaign doesn't work while someone's standing in a shopping aisle, it doesn't work. And I just thought that was such an interesting take on it. And I was kind of interested to learn this whole side of things that I hadn't learned before. Um, I also realised that shopper is really really hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's not particularly um, creatively yeah. that exciting. Yeah. But it, again, I was just I was interested in in the um, in learning a whole new discipline. So I was doing that, and then Wyverns at the time was such an interesting place, and you know so much great creative opportunity there. I was looking after NRMA, and we were doing like uh, the car from built from all the parts, yeah. and like there was lots of creative opportunity, and then. And, again, I probably I didn't think I would leave. But then when I got approached about the RGA job, it was just such an interesting opportunity to, to, again, push yourself way outside your comfort zone as well.
0: It's funny, isn't it? Because you look at a lot of those changes and those shifts and you wonder, did you ever think that you were going backwards? Uh,
1: not really. I mean, I, I did worry a little bit on the typecasting that you can be. And it was actually probably more when I was coming back to Australia. Mm. Cause one, of the, one of the most fascinating things I found was, the two most consistent conversations I heard with people were one was almost everyone that I spoke to from an agency perspective uh, in terms of potential jobs. the, The conversation was the world's changing and we need to change. And you very, very quickly realize that it's easy to say you want to change and the worst position you could be as a creative lead is to go into an agency that doesn't actually want to change because then you you you, you, it's a hiding for nothing you're not going to win in that one and you're probably going to be the fall guy and off the back of that as well so that was the one the other one was how many people had typecasted me in a particular role so people were like oh no we wouldn't consider you for a a mainstream agency role because you're a digital guy (laughs) <laughs> right, I just thought, yeah. it was, yeah, I thought it was really interesting because I don't think of myself like that. I wouldn't actually classify myself as a digital. I mean, I've worked with people who are properly digital people and I wouldn't put myself in the same um, ballpark as them. But I think I'm someone who's got a very good understanding of a lot of things in advertising. So I find it interesting that there's, there's still the stereotyping as a, as a creative. And it's actually very scary as a creative because yeah. you kind of go, well, it, it just makes you suddenly realise you're you're now typecast in a very narrow box. Where I don't think that many creatives are actually. I think of most of the creatives I work with have a pretty wide range yeah. of skills.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, if they could typecast you, what hope has anybody else got? Because you look at that really broad range of experience, Gav, I I just think it's amazing how much you've weaved different threads together of of the different aspects of advertising. And you talk about it as if it just sort of happened, but there must have been some sort of a plan or some sort of driving force other than just wanting to go and do something different. Like shopper marketing isn't something that's going to appeal to many people yeah and and to be honest it didn't appeal to me like it was I guess the thing is like when
1: when they when they sort of sprung on me oh you're going to be looking after this which it sort of came up like pretty far down the conversation I guess you got two points of that you can do two things at that point and these two things went through my head one was you never told me this and I don't want to do that or the other point was this is an agency, like right at that moment, you could see that um, TBWA was going to go through a creative research. And I guess to your point, like I, the, the decision I made in my head was I really respect Maddie and Dave. I think they're going to do some pretty exceptional things. What I like about Paul Bradbury is I just respect um, Bradbury's passion for creativity. So you've got someone who's running the agency who's passionate about creativity, and then you've got two fantastic, and I still think two of the best creatives in Australia, running and properly getting their own, this is their show now, and they've got Scott Wyman's backing. So you kind of go, this is a really interesting place. And I'd never worked in uh, a, like a true hothouse environment, creative hothouse thing, when you when an agency's just about to have its spark and it's going to burn bright. And I was like, I really want to be part of that. Yeah, right. So from my point of view is if that meant that I had to and learn how to do shopper marketing. Okay, well I'm all in on that point. I'm going to go and try and I'm going to try and do the best work I can do in that. And I guess what was nice about that is I wasn't only doing that. That was one component of what I did. But I was really proud like and Georgie um Georgie was like she's awesome. Like so I was really proud like 2 years later we won emerging agency of the year, which is pretty hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can I tell you yeah. one great story on Scott on that? We had a uh, and I probably shouldn't tell the story. <laughs> 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 we were up for two two categories for emerging agency of the year. And we went in. And it was one of those, I can't remember if it was Mumbrella or something. You know, one of the ones where if you get to a finalist, you, you go and have a chat with a panel of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a guy in there who, one of the judges, he had obviously decided that we were we were faking it and we were leveraging the agency. So he had a real go at, at Georgia around... Oh, you guys are just claiming the credit, and 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 from his side, I could see why you would say that. But the reality it was, that, you know, it was completely integrated. So I felt just as much ownership in the work that we were putting forward, because we had worked on it all the way through on all components of it. But he was really aggressively went for and was rude, and I was sitting there thinking, and I went, you know what, this is just some award and he's really been a complete dickhead to her and I've got a bit of a temper so I I kind of got angry about it and we ended up having this massive argument and so afterwards we went well we're not going to win that category (laughs) so we went to the bar and Scott came down because he'd heard that the things had got a bit heated and he he went and we had a long chat and he he was just great he said look absolutely you should have done that so we were going to our next chat and Scott said I'm coming with you and we were like Uh, well okay so we go to this thing and there's another panel of people (laughs) and Scott walked in he said you're probably wondering why I'm here and all the Judges are going, yep. And he goes, "I just want to say that Georgia came to me a couple of years ago with this um, shopper marketing. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about it, but I do know it's the future, and I do know that because I put the money in to f- to fund this whole thing. So I'm going to let you tell them why my money has been well spent." And he walked off, <laughs> and we won. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh,
0: what a what a persuasive argument! It was. Yeah, it was yeah, very good. Yeah. But um, oh, look, I don't know. I think. Coming out of that, I reckon, the insight I'd take away is that you just seem to have followed your instinct based on people. It seems to have worked out really well, but not just what you think they're about to achieve, but whether you think you'd enjoy working with them. I'm staggered to hear about you losing your temper, because I don't think... I don't know if I've ever seen you lose your temper.
1: <laughs> you must do it very selectively. Uh, actually, it was when we were at MNC. Like, I was the classic fiery art director, and I can remember throwing my toys out because someone had asked me to make the logo
0: bigger. I don't recall that at all. You were in the office next door to us, and I can't ever recall hearing the neighbours fight.
1: Uh, uh, the reason why is mm. someone um, who... Uh, came up to me once and said, you need to be very, very careful because I know you're doing this with the best intentions around stuff. But what you're also doing is you've basically been a bit of a dickhead and that will follow you far, far longer and become a perception of that might not be the reality of who you are as a person. And I was smart enough to go, actually, I think they're right. So I've, I work very hard because I am a very emotional person and I'm very emotional as a creative. And my worst bit is I lose control of the emotion, and I say stuff that I regret afterwards. Uh, and I work very hard to not be like that. And when I do do that, I try and apologise uh, within reason. I'm not going to apologise if I think I, oh, I'm going to I'm always going to apologise for saying something that in the way that I probably wish I hadn't have said it. I might not apologise for my belief <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But but the point that where they were right is years later, I was going for a job um, at an agency, and I really wanted it. Uh, and so I went and had a couple of interviews and. Uh, and went all very well and then I got I didn't get the job and I was just interested to know why and so I asked someone who wasn't involved but knew the whole thing and they said it's because someone in the agency had said that you're a difficult person to work with. Yeah, right. And that was that was like that was stuff from maybe 4 years yeah. before and it just made me realize how long a perception sticks with you yeah. when you've actually fundamentally changed as a person. Yeah. So yeah. Th- that advice I got was probably the best advice I've had in my career.
0: Yeah. I wish someone had given me that advice. <laughs> <laughs> So, look, you hear so much talk about the future of agencies and you look at, you know, the consultancies coming in and taking more of the business and then either buying an agency or opening up their own in-house shop. And then, you know, there's the whole realm of in-house creative departments. How do you see it playing out?
1: Um, I have a pretty good insight on this because one thing about San Francisco is it's, I would say it's about two or three years ahead of where Sydney's going to be in two or three years' time because that Dy- dynamic of agency um in-house and consultancy it's it's white hot there because you know the apples and the googles and and not even those like what surprised me about san francisco is the obvious ones are the apples and the googles there are clients that, like we were working on a client called service now which is i can't remember now it's like 3.4 billion dollar company like it's a giant giant company most innovative company in the world in Forbes magazine in the year we were working on it they building out a giant creative department so that in-house move and it's not just I mean these are the best people like there are some phenomenal people working in-house in there so like the in-house agency vibe the consultancies the agencies like it is so competitive in San Francisco and we haven't seen the true impact on that and maybe we never will because I'm not sure brands here have the capabilities or, or the desire to build up creative departments but i could see it coming it depends on your perspective like if you if you wedded to creative agencies and that's your thing then i think it's terrifying because i can see a, a diminishing and diminishing role for creative agencies but if you look at the opportunities and the the paths that have opened for us as creatives it's actually amazing it's it's the best time ever ever to be a creative because suddenly there's all these options that we've never had before so I look at it from that perspective and I kind of go if I can wed myself from you know I'm an agency person um, if I can weed myself off that mindset then it's incredibly inciting and and was it, it, I mean the one interesting thing about coming back was the the big dilemma for us was um, I got offered a really interesting client side role um, at in, in San Francisco and when you look at it, that was like a 200-person creative department uh, and with, you know, six editing faci- I mean, everything you could possibly ask for in an agency was there mm. um, and with a breadth of work that was really, really interesting as well.
0: The, the, yeah, because it's it's interesting to see where it's going to go. You know, there are so many, uh, so many options and avenues open. It, it will be very interesting to see, like you say, whether Australia has the scale to explore that. I've got to say I think the, the consultancy stuff, has it borne the creative fruit?
1: I think it's early days still. And I think they're still, they, they're still working out... Um, and you can see them exploring the different models. So obviously Accenture is going acquisition, and they yeah. they built they buying you know they've got great taste in who they buy. So they're buying the drogers and the monkeys and things like that. Their challenge is they're not conditioned to understand those those things. So I think the biggest problem for them is making it work. And that's so, it. Yeah. yeah, and and putting someone like Mark Green in there and g- making it his problem is probably a very smart move in this market from Accenture perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, Deloitte obviously they're going to build from internally and, and to their credit they've you know, in this market they've hired good people and I would say they're the most successful in creating but really they're creating an agency model it yeah. just happens to it, it's just yeah, got yeah, a new on. name yeah, yeah um and uh, and talking to a few friends that have or quite a few friends who work in that there's still there's a fundamental difference of understanding of the, the true consultants and you know that very corporate consultancy world and the creative thing it's not an easy relationship between those those things yeah. I, I don't know enough about the deloitte one to say if that's true or not for them but certainly on some of the others it's been a real challenge
0: yeah and with the moves and just that that breadth of experience you've got what stopped you from starting your own thing? That's
1: a good question. Uh, partly the people. Like uh, there was a moment in time a few years ago, where it's the right people, and I guess what I've learned around it is, you, you have to be really sure that you're going to do it with the right people. Mm-hmm. And IGA, the IGA experience really, really made me realize that. It's so intense. It like puts so much strain on you as a person. And then I was thinking about that. Is like imagine if this was. Imagine, I'm still getting paid a salary. Imagine if we weren't paying. I think I legitimately have lost my mind Mm. and I don't think I've found the mix of people that I would want to do it with, that I would go to the trenches with and know that when the the shit really hit the fan, like, we would have each other's backs and we Mm. wouldn't destroy each other as well. Yeah, right. So, yeah, and and so that's why I, I guess the more I've done this, the more admiration I have for... Um, oh, everyone is doing it on on their own. It doesn't matter whether they succeed or fail. I just I really tip my hat for them for it. <laughs>
0: Do you find with the, the younger creatives that you're recruiting these days, do you see in them an ambition to be advertising creatives long term? Or is it just a very kind of temporary, I'm going to do this for five years and then I'm going to go off and do something else?
1: It depends. I mean, I actually think they are fundamentally different to when I started. I think when I started, there was a much more competitive environment. and you Really? Were, yeah and and you were maybe it was the agencies I worked in but you really didn't share like it was you and your partner against the world and you were very conscious that best idea wins and you just wanted to be the, the team that cracked everything whereas the thing I really like about this generation is they're innately really collaborative and they're really supportive of each other they're way more, more conscious of the mental health impacts um, that working and particularly working in advertising has as creatives and I find them way more supportive of each other and it's true actually just you know just fun to work and then I think some of them some of them have decided that this is their thing and they're working they're working religiously and then I think there's a lot of them are doing it as they're not, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but they're not committed to it. Like to them, it's, it's probably a stepping stone to something else.
0: Yeah, yeah, I wonder what that thing is.
1: Yeah, who knows?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Hey, listen, it's been really fascinating talking to you, Gav. It's been so great Thank to you. to catch up with you, mate. It's yeah, you, you look fantastic. Um, That's because I went for a
1: surf this morning. Ah, <laughs> oh,
0: see, there you go. Um, but no, it's been so great talking to you, mate. I've got so much respect for just that depth of knowledge that you've accumulated over the years. And you've always just been someone who's been able to keep it real in terms of just your attitude to the people you work with and also the end game of what we're there to do, you know. I'm sure that we're going to see more great things out of Ogilvy under your stewardship, mate. So congratulations on that. Now, Part of the whole game on the creative relay is, of course, though, that you do have to pass the baton on to someone. You don't have to tell us who it is, but have you got someone in mind that you think you might talk to?
1: Uh, Yeah, I have actually from uh, off the back of our conversation today. I think it would be interesting to bring someone on – who can answer or have a different perspective on some of the questions we've talked about so we've talked a bit about owning your own agency and and you know what that takes and, and the rewards and the challenges of that so I think it would be interesting and I've got someone who I think would be very interesting from that perspective this is all dependent on whether they say yes or no
0: well let's see let's see whose arm you can twist yeah and I'm very much looking forward to having another chat with you and your guest on that note I'll say thank you very much for being our guest and it's been absolutely fantastic having a chat with
1: you, mate. Uh, and I just want to say thank, thank you. I mean, uh, I really, I really loved this series. Like, I, I was listening to it in, in San Francisco, and uh, massive respect for Dan and the crew for you know putting it together. So I was really, really stoked
0: to be invited on this. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Oh, good on you, guys. Um. Thanks for downloading the Creative Relay podcast brought to you by Smith & Weston. Go to our website at thecreativerelay.com where you'll find a whole lot more info and extra content about the podcasts and all our guests.